This podcast was recorded at 11 a.m. on 15 February Jakarta time. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to Reverend Massey Dispatch. I'm Jeff Hutton, regional correspondent for the Straits Times of Singapore. And I'm Kevin O'Rourke from the Reformasi Weekly Service Analyzing Indonesian Politics and Policymaking. First up, a bit of housekeeping before we get into the show. We are uh, we embracing the social media. I don't know. Have you heard of the, these guys? Uh, a tweeter? Uh, Twitter? Uh, 2006? We, uh, we have a... Kevin? Yeah. We're online. Isn't that great? Yep. You can find us. You can find us now at Reformasi underscore pod. Uh, follow us. We'll follow you back. We're just a bunch but of uh, Gen X conundrums here. Word of mouth is good too. I, you know, I insist. <laughs> we, 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 need, we need all the help we can get. It's like a drug whenever I see it. Someone, someone popping up, following us, following them. It's time. I think, I, th- I think the social media thing's here to stay. I don't know about you. <laughs> On today's program, disgraced police general Ferdi Sambo gets the death penalty. Indonesia topples down Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index. And Papuan rebels release photos and videos of a man they said is the New Zealander pilot that they took hostage earlier this month. We'll get into that a little later. And after the break, we speak with Dan Slater, professor at University of Michigan. Dan published last month a, a piece in the Journal of Democracy, what Indonesian democracy can teach the world. Uh, that was a, that was last week, actually, back on back on Friday. And uh, listeners may uh, remember that there's spy balloons all over Michigan right now. So we 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 hope that uh, Dan Slater's and his family are well. American democracy seems to be okay. Uh, but one of the takeaways from that interview, and I, I really loved it, was um, he didn't mind. The, the lower temperature going into the the election. I, w- I was uh, lamenting, like, you know, in 2014 when when we were at the end of uh, SBY's presidency and going into uh, the, the the country was considering Joko Widodo, there was a real hunger for change. It was really out on the street and uh, there was a hunger for uh, for the election to turn the page. Where's really the case this time? And he said, "Well, that's really par for the course. You, you, you kind of want the temperature to come down." Um, yeah. And I said, "This is not quite pro forma, but it's expected, and we'll we'll hear the case, and we'll cast our ballot, and you know, life goes on. It's well, maturing democracies are kind of like that." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can't be a fever pitch all the time, and. Uh... Yeah, he uh, keeps uh, close tabs in Indonesia from a perspective of emerging democracies worldwide. So it's good to hear his perspectives. And he's definitely somebody who really appreciates what Indonesia has achieved, which often goes overlooked. And uh, he's uh, reasonably bullish, too. And it was good to hear his uh, inputs on items like uh, the scenario of a Prabowo presidency and uh, also the... uh, Interplay between corruption on one hand and democratization on the other, and the role of money in politics, uh, these kinds of things that are uh, themes that often get talked about, and he was able to bring a pretty good perspective to it. And he also uh, was able to roll with uh, your sense of humor. So, yeah, overall, I was pretty impressed by what he was doing. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, it is a, it's, it's not everybody. Not, not to everyone's taste. <laughs> <laughs> he rolled with it. That, that was fine. Um, and I, I did, I did sort of like the, the banter. We were able to get going. This is a guy who knows his stuff and, um, he's an optimist. He thinks, uh, things are going to work out more or less. And I was emphasizing the uh, the role of regional head elections, which are under threat yet again, you know, with um, elites talking about uh, repealing them. And that's such a key thing for Indonesia's democratization. I think it's what sets it apart from a lot of other countries that have had uh, mixed results with uh, democratization. Indonesia has this system of recruiting talent from the local level and enabling them to uh, rise and enter international politics based on service and you know, their track record, which is... Uh, a pretty helpful mechanism. Yeah, I've, they've got a more or less functioning uh, free press that loves a good story. It's got it's got multiple avenues of important provinces where an aspiring politician can prove his or her mettle in executive role and uh, have that you know broadcasted to the rest of the country. There are. Big, big parties that vie for attention. There are civil groups. We are seeing how, how these interlace to create democratic institutions that are proving viable and resilient. There's reason for optimism. Yeah. Um, and that is what Indonesia is teaching the world. It kind of takes a village. It's not it's just ultimately, yeah, it's ultimately the ultimately is the electorate, which is so good in Indonesia. Right. And the electorate is not about to let go of their vote. They are maybe they're quieting yeah. down, but they love going out to the polls and uh, they're going to continue to do that. Thank you very much. <laughs> and they like it when um, when the high and mighty are, are brought low. Ferdy Sambo, the disgraced police general, was found guilty on Monday of ordering the murder of his own subordinate, Nofriancia Yosia Hutabara, and sentenced to death in a high-profile murder trial that had the whole country in its thrall. Presiding Judge Wahyu Iman Santoso said that there were no extenuating circumstances that would justify leniency for Ferdi, who was seemingly lacking in any remorse and actively covered up the crime. Sambo's wife, Putri Chandrawati, was found guilty and sentenced to 20 years in prison for involvement in Hutabarat's murder, concocting a story that the man had raped her, somehow creating a permission struck, uh, some sort of permission for his murder. <laughs> I still can't get my head around that one. As we record this episode on Wednesday, the court has so far handed down guilty verdicts, harsher than expected sentences of four suspects. The fifth one is on its way. Um, I... <laughs> Don't want to put you on the spot here, Kevin, but can you give us a recap of what the case was? <laughs> well, well that, that's that's one of the three things that I'm unhappy about. Uh, we don't know what the case was about in terms of what was driving the execution of uh, Sergeant Hutabarat. It was definitely a premeditated murder. It was definitely planned and carried out uh, by Sambo uh, involving accomplices. But prosecutors, uh, I think, uh, utterly failed to explain why Sambo did this. And so there's more to the story, and I I find that very annoying. Um, uh, It should have been possible to clarify that. I think it's important to do so. But uh, they didn't. 
And also, I don't like the fact that there hasn't been any broader uh, underlying reforms of the police uh, as a result of this case, especially since there were revelations about Sambo's role and all sorts of nefarious activities that were you know, uh, compelling and uh, you know, worth following up. And it doesn't seem as if that's been done. And then well, finally, let's, let's, let, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, I, okay. I wanted to ask you about about the, uh, the 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 sentences first. I mean, there was a there was a pattern that was uh, they they went over and above what the prosecution was looking for. Yeah. Um, they wanted a life sentence for Ferdy. He got death. Uh, I think they wanted a, a dozen years or so for for the wife, and she got twenty years. Um, Again and again, the the judge the judges were outdoing themselves. Um, what did you make of the of, of the sentences? Was that just so much sort of uh, trying to keep pace with public opinion? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I disagree with capital punishment. It just doesn't logically make sense. You know, thou shalt not kill, and so in order to enforce the rule that thou shalt not kill, we're going to kill. I mean, that's yeah, that's kill. A, a logical flaw in the use of capital no. punishment. We have no okay. use for the Apart- news. Yeah. Apart from that, though, I mean, yeah. So the judges applied a, a tougher sentence than expected, and I guess that's a good thing. Um, so I don't think that Sambo is ever going to face a firing squad because he'll have multiple chances for appeals and also requests for clemency from the president down the road. And so that, that's going to uh, transpire over a period of uh, quite a few years. So. But it is good to see the judges being strict and stern here. I think basically this is a, a, a tendency among on the part of district level judges to try to stand out and uh, show themselves as being tough. Uh, and it helps build their reputation in the judiciary in, in their quests for promotion later. So in such a high profile case like this, uh, this is the kind of uh, verdict that comes out sometimes. Now, it was high profile because... Of the of the lurid details, no less that uh, Sambo himself, Ferdy Sambo himself, was actually the police investigator. He was sort of internal affairs. He was the guy who went yeah. into the crooked cops. Yeah. Um, turns out he was manifestly crooked himself, and so it was. There were there were a string of sackings on the part that were uh, that that were ordered by Alistio. The police chief, and then it stopped. The, the sacking stopped. There was some brief hope that this would be the trigger for broad-based police reform. Something God knows is badly needed here. Exactly. Why? Why, why did it stop? Well, in uh, mid-October last year, in the wake of a string of sackings of mid-level police officers by Listio, and also pretty detailed revelations from anonymous sources about networks of nefarious activity presided over by Sambo and his department. Suddenly, seven former police chiefs made uh, a group visit to the office of Listio, and uh, they talked about something that's unclear. They didn't express support for what Listio was doing. They they did talk to reporters and they said nothing of that sort. They said just very cryptic comments. And these are the uh, figures who put in place the officers who are so problematic for Listio now. So yeah, these are figures who 
more or less are part of the problem rather than the solution. And since that meeting between Lustio and the seven former police chiefs, there were no more sackings since then. And it seems as if uh, the momentum and the interest in fundamental police reform ground to a halt uh, after that. So I would assume that the president would have taken a stance uh, at some stage, probably around that time as well. And I think that uh, that's probably what Lustio was responding to, that intervention from his former predecessors, as well as uh, possibly the president as well. The president really dislikes rancor and turmoil and that's exactly what was happening within the police. I think it was a healthy, necessary, important thing. No, but, uh, yeah, yeah. no, <laughs> no. He, he's he, he's not a revolutionary. Uh, yeah, no. By he's he's a transactional institutionalist. Does that make sense? Like, if, if he doesn't want to burn things down, wants to get everyone on the same page, and that has its understandable uses of places like. Indonesia, but just it seems it's seemingly tone deaf here. And we can see, I attempt of a segue here, that uh, that sort of leniency, the blind eye turning to corruption, may have manifested itself somewhat in the Transparency International the findings, the, per, the perception. The corruption perception index fell for, uh, had Indonesia falling. Uh, four points to from 38 to 34. It looks like that was the biggest one-year drop since 1995. The good old days. <laughs> the biggest one-year slump since the mid-90s. And Indonesia was behind Malaysia at 47, annoyingly behind Thailand at 36. The the interesting thing is that these sort of tables, they uh, they, they cause aneurysms in the presidential palace. And he, uh, Widodo looks at these and will demand heads, um, but sadly won't take the action. Like broad-based police reform in order to bump Indonesia back up these, these league tables that foreign investors look at. This is what they trot out. This is what lazy journalists will look at when they want to establish a, a story that Indonesia is increasingly corrupt. And you could just look at these numbers and there it says yeah, and this is a, an index of perceptions, and the uh, the index is accurate in that sense for sure because the perception is that things are worsening. There's been less and less independence of uh, institutions that are supposed to be independent, uh, especially the KPK, but the Constitutional Court is under a chief justice who became a brother-in-law to the president last year. Um and um, it's uh, the consequence of the tendencies of the past uh, several years, um, whereby there's just uh, less credibility in corruption investigations. And uh, meanwhile, plenty of accounts of malfeasance and also just uh, blatant disrespect for the norms of the rule of law, especially by, for example, the president's own chief of staff, uh, former military chief Moldoko, who attempted last year to usurp the main opposition party, Partei Democrat, on completely spurious grounds. So these are the kind of things that factor in, I think, to that perception index. And you know, like you said, Widodo takes it seriously. And so it's uh, coming back to haunt him. To his credit, Widodo didn't denounce the index. I mean, that's always the temptation is to say that the uh, the index is uh, concocted by foreigners yeah. who are in the weak right. in Indonesia. <laughs> that didn't right. Which has happened in the past. I yeah. think uh, Standard & Poor's would um, 
is is an example of that with the with the downgrading of of, of Indonesian debt. But no, Widodo himself doesn't sort of lambaste. He doesn't he doesn't go full Erdogan on this. He actually takes it on the chin and starts um, uh, demanding uh, uh, improvements. Um, just a little bit of a, some fun facts. Back in 1999, Indonesia was ranked 96 out of 99 countries when it ranked 17 on the same index. And that was 34. And yet, while you listed off the KPK, the Constitutional Court, Moldoko trying to become the head of the chairman of the main opposition party, it doesn't seem to be the same animating issue that it was in 2014. Does that mean that Indonesians are inured to it? Are they just expect it? Or it's not, it, it doesn't seem to be the same galvanizing issue that it once was, the same issue that swept Jokowi to power in 2014. Uh, yeah, um, you know, corruption has always mattered to voters, and I think it still does. I think it still will. I don't think it's ever actually been the paramount thing. Uh, it's always about income and living standards and job opportunities and economic questions is, is just livelihoods are the things that voters consistently highlight as their foremost concern above all else. Uh, so, and Widodo was popular because he had a track record for delivering the services that the voters are clamoring for. Also, he had a, an ability to uh, commiserate or empathize or connect with voters as a man of people persona that he conveyed. And then there was the uh, clean governance promises. Uh, so it was a package of those three things. And I think those things are going to be pertinent again in the next election, if uh, the election ever does uh, start. Oh, the- <laughs> if anybody ever gets around to campaigning. <laughs> We're leaving that aside this week. <laughs> it's a note. By the way, everyone, you can start your clocks. It's now 364 days to the next election. The clock started February 14th. I know, I know you are you are chomping at the bit to do it to do a riff. What what uh, what what stands out as something people need to look at as um, as the presidential race kicks off? Well, this wasn't in the planning meeting yesterday, but I, when, I, I sort of feel like when will the presidential race kick off? Is right. the main question, and that's still completely up in the air. There's um, still no real movement over the past week, so it's uh the uh, purpu on the omnibus uh, is something that may well have already passed by the time this uh, podcast drops uh, that, that could uh, the ratification could be today uh, later this afternoon uh, if not it's probably going to take until late march or even early april for them to do that and it could very well be that widodo is waiting for that before he's willing to allow the parties in his alliance to go off in different directions with different uh, nominees and thereby split his uh, um, pro-government alliance apart. And once, once the big legislative agenda is more or less done and dusted, then yeah. he, gets, he gives the nod and the politicking begins. Does that mean legislation grinds to a halt? This is it, February. Uh, yeah, this, yeah. This uh, is it. Next year. It could be. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think if uh, Megawati reacts badly and turns adversarial, then that's going to basically deny the government a reliable majority in parliament. So uh, there's, there's going to be less legislative uh, accomplishments, I think, uh, during the final stages here.
Dari Malut Gamalut is a weekly newsletter that has brought the best in news and analysis in Southeast Asia to thousands of inboxes for six years. Home to more than half a billion people and an emerging economic powerhouse, knowing the region is only getting more important. Dari Malut Gamalut helps you get across it. I love this newsletter and I, I love Aaron. I love her passion and purpose for writing it. She's been doing this for a while now and it really comes across. She's just very committed and enthusiastic about the news and events here. I highly recommend this to anyone. Now, Reformasi fans have 25% off for the first year with any new annual subscription. Just head to dadimalut.substack.com slash reformasi. I'll say that again. dadimalut.substack.com slash reformasi. On Tuesday, separatist rebels in Papua released photos and videos of a man they said is the New Zealander pilot they took hostage earlier this month. Philip Mark Mertens of Christchurch, a pilot for Susi Air, was abducted by independence fighters from the West Papua Liberation Army. The rebels stormed Mertens' single-engine plane shortly after it landed on a small runway in Paro in the remote Duga district. That's in the middle of the province. The plane was carrying five passengers and was scheduled to pick up 15 construction workers who had been building a health center in Paro. The rebels, led by Egyanus Kogoya, threatened to kill them, according to media reports. Police in Jayapura, the provincial capital, say they are petitioning local community and tribal leaders to win Merton's release. Kevin, is how embarrassing is this for the administration? Mm, well, it's uh, this is an important development for all of Indonesia and for New Zealand. Uh, this is really sort of a nightmare scenario because this group of West Papua Liberation Army or TPNPB has been so elusive despite the massive presence by security forces in that area for months now. So possible that they could uh, keep this hostage uh, hidden for as long as they like, practically. Uh, it's just such incredibly rugged, remote terrain, and uh, it's their home turf. Uh, so uh, it's a grim situation for uh, this pilot, uh, Mertens. They're, they're smack dab in the middle of Papua. Um, and when you look at it on the map, it's just a hair to the south of the ridge of island uh, mountains that run east-west across the the province. I, I, I can't imagine anything more remote in Indonesia. And this must be a really horrible time for the pilot. Certainly not a great way to win hearts and minds for the rebels, however. This, what, what, what do you think their end game is here? Uh, this is an escalation. And so it uh, may elicit uh, a tougher response uh, from the security forces, which in turn could complicate uh, Indonesia's dealings internationally with the uh, critical scrutiny that has already long been in place uh, regarding uh, affairs in Papua. And that could all get worse and uh, create a real complication for the administration in Jakarta. So that in turn you know, gives uh, this group bargaining power uh, in effect. Um, I don't think that they're going to make any demands that uh, Jakarta can concede to, uh, but um, uh, it's this could be a prolonged standoff. Uh, uh, one possibility, right? Duke is a, a one of the areas that's 
on uh, on track to become a full-fledged province, right? There's a number of provinces that can be the, the, the area is going to be broken up to uh, six more provinces. It has been. That's right. So Duga is part of the newly created province of Highlands Papua, which consists of several districts, one of which is Duga. The capital is at Wamina. So it's possible that uh, this newly created province is just going to be regarded as a conflict zone and the entire province could really suffer from a further diminution of services provided by uh, the central government which has already been the case, you know, the, the health indicators in the area and the economic indicators in the highlands are so far behind the rest of Indonesia and uh, probably falling more so. Uh, the, so the, there's the, pockets of polio in this area, uh, in parts of that area, right? I mean, that's it's that horn of Africa levels of, uh, of development. Yeah, there's uh, you know, malnutrition um, and... Uh, yeah, just a lack of health services generally, low life expectancy, so poor education services too. So, uh, you know, Widodo had really hoped at the outset of his presidency to overcome a lot of these lagging indicators by rolling out infrastructure development, but it's been very difficult for crews to work safely in the highlands uh, in a lot of cases. So that's all fallen way far behind. And yeah, it's uh, the solution has been to divide the province up a la Julius Caesar and uh, divide and conquer that way. And that was a strategy used by Megawati 20 years ago when she unilaterally moved in violation of the spirit of special autonomy to divide the province of Papua into Papua and West Papua. And now the Widodo administration has divided Papua into uh, four provinces in total, uh, while also dividing the province of West Papua into two provinces by creating West Coast Papua. So, and this is a way to buy off the elites, too, because when there's a new province created, then there's more budget funds for new posts and positions and the people in place get promotions to higher ranks in the civil service and so on. So uh, that's sort of the dynamic there. Right. You know, uh, Jokowi came to came into office with uh, with high hopes that he was going to normalize relationship with with the eastern parts of the country. And I think. In rapid succession, he made two presidential visits. Um, I think he bested Megawati's record within a couple of months. Presidencies have come and gone in Indonesia with, without the head of state setting foot in Papua. He, he did try at first, but it got the better of him. He, do, do you think it was an abject failure? Did, yeah. It been, yeah. Yeah. I think so. Like we were talking about earlier. Yeah. This is, uh, uh, there's a there's a persistent reluctance on the part of Widodo to address core fundamental root problems uh, of uh, maladies, instead focusing on superficial remedies. In this case, attempting to uh, paper over problems in Papua by literally laying down tarmac for a trans Papua highway. He's like a surgeon treating diseases with band aids rather than surgeries and. Um, uh, that's uh, what's gone wrong in, in this case. And uh, so it's an even deeper problem for his uh, successor, whoever that might be, if the campaigning ever starts. Okay, we'll leave it there. Coming up, Dan Slater, University of Michigan.
Dan Slater, Wiser Professor of Emerging Democracies at the University of Michigan and Director of the Wiser Center on Emerging Democracies. Thank you so much for joining Reformacy Dispatch, Dan. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Right. Uh, yeah, really keen to uh, talk about democratization in Indonesia. So, um, Dan, you're an eminent professor, a published author, and a new article coming out in the Journal of Democracy titled, What Indonesian Democracy Can Teach the World? So, uh, yeah, it's uh, great to have you with us. Um, I also am a serious person. I just want to warn you in advance. We also have Jeff on the podcast. What? I don't, you don't need that kind of disclaimer? No what? <laughs> what? <laughs> He's one of those people that likes to tell jokes, okay? warning? I appreciate the warning. I will be fully prepared for any and all jokes coming coming across the airwaves. So yeah, thank, you for, so thank you for the fair thank you for the fair warning. Mm. Right. Yeah, I thought it was only fair. Um, okay, corruption is uh, the word that I like to use to start about uh, to start any conversation about uh, Indonesia. Uh, from the standpoint of uh, the big picture. And uh, basically, so to start you off with an easy one, then should democracy be mitigating corruption and uh, what I like to call patronage style norms uh, in Indonesia? Is that something that's reasonable to expect uh, eventually here? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think so. I mean, I think that Indonesia has stood out from uh, from most young democracies in the world in the strength of its uh, anti-corruption commission, the KPK. And, you know, although certainly, you know, authoritarian regimes will have, you know, anti-corruption campaigns from time to time, you know, at the, at the behest and at the, at the will of the, of the autocrat, like we see in, in China under Xi Jinping, to actually build institutions that can meaningfully constrain elites from corrupt self-dealing, you know, I think democracy in Indonesia has been very helpful for that. And, you know, time and time again, bureaucrats, politicians have tried to, to weaken the KPK, and it's been public pressure, you know, public support for the KPK that has, um, you know, saved what, what strength it still has. So I think it's a pretty good example of, uh, you know, how, how the democratic aspects of Indonesia are, are conducive to, you know, the extent to which, not a great extent, but to, you know, at least to some extent that uh, corruption control has been part of the, part of the package of what has come with uh, democracy in Indonesia certainly more so than a lot of other comparable countries where, you know, basically democracy means the democratization of corruption just kind of means the spreading of kind of old corrupt deals to a, a wider segment of the, of the population. Okay. Cause that's, that's an allegation that comes up. Uh, lots of critics uh, in Indonesia of elections, typically I'm talking about you know, political elites claim right. that democratization has just created uh, Raja Kachil or small dictators mm-hmm. around the right. region. What do you think about that? Well, there's there's Raja Kachil and there's Raja Basar, right? There's I think if you if you if anyone who thinks that democracy created corruption in Indonesia is you know either just willfully just denying history or just is mm. just doesn't know the history because you know clearly you know corruption was was absolutely massive under the Suharto regime, and so I think that you know local elections there's there's a lot of variation in how they play out. You know, money politics plays a role in some places, you know, more than others. But I definitely don't think that, you know, moving back to a system where, you know, as many Indonesian political elites would like, moving back to a system where local uh, executives are appointed rather than uh, rather than elected, that's certainly no recipe for getting corruption out of the way. It's just a, it's a recipe for making sure that the people benefiting the most from those money exchanges are going to be those 
with the authority to make the appointments. Um, and so that's definitely no, I think it's a bit of a, a bit of a red herring. You know, there's all kinds of things that happen in Indonesia, you know, might have some tinge of or some element of, of corruption to them in the way that they play out. That's not a reason to, you know, roll back the very tenuous democratic gains that the Indonesian people have have managed to secure over the past quarter century. Well, there's your chance, Kevin. You got to ask him about the regional heads now. Your, your, your pet uh, theory. Right. Yeah, no, because, yeah, this is a, a hot topic that we were talking about. Uh, yet again, there's calls to scrap regional head elections. And, right. Uh, um, this argument that uh, they're democratizing corruption and creating corruption in the regions is um, mm-hmm. you know, a red herring, uh, an excuse or a pretext right. uh, for uh, re-centralizing authority. So what, what, what do you see going on here? Um, is this the electorate versus the elite? I mean, I don't want to put it in quite so stark a terms, but I do think that there are, I think Indonesia's political elite is is more unified than most. I think that there is, I mean, particularly because, you know, the bureaucracy is strong, the military is strong, the security services are strong. Um, you know, politicians, elected politicians don't have, you know, as much power in some other democracies which is a very much a function of Indonesia's colonial history and of its authoritarian history. And so I think what that means is that there's more cohesion within the elite and there's more of a, a consensus, if you will, um, that, you know, democracy has gone too far and that, you know, if only the, you know, the best and brightest and those people who actually manage the inner workings of the Indonesian political apparatus, if just they could be left to their own devices to, to run things then everything would, would, would go better. And so I do think it, in some ways it can take on the form of electorate versus uh, versus the elite. Obviously, the elites have plenty of allies among voters. It's not like the electorate is certainly not a unified bloc, that's for sure. Um, but I do think when it comes to things like, you know, getting rid of, you know, local elections, um, direct elections, it does, I think, come pretty close to that. I think that starting with it as a perspective of, you know, there is a pretty, you know, strong, um, not completely single-minded, but an elite that has a pretty wide consensus that, you know, the democratic gains have kind of gone too far and an electorate that I think is actually very covetous of its, its voting rights and certainly of its ability to remove politicians that uh, voters don't like. I think Indonesian voters uh, relish that opportunity to vote out people they don't like. So, yeah. So I think, I, I think it's, you know, without making it a, you know, too much of a black and white story, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a bad way to start thinking about it, that, that uh, there's this rollback happening basically from the elite and the electorate is, you know, and, 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 you know, civil society very much so, you know, protesters, you know, trying to push back. And it's really, it's, a, it's an uphill battle when the, the elite is kind of moving in one direction as much as they are in terms of, uh, you know, rolling back, uh, you know, democratic gains. Oh, I, 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 I hasten, I hasten to disagree. It's got to be a black and white issue. I'm a journalist. I got to be able to. Be, so, I mean, one, one, of, one of the big, big draws of Indonesia was this sort of the, the good versus evil, the white caps versus the black caps. You can really reduce the, the question. No, no, but um, yeah. in, but in 2014, you know, Joko Widodo swept to the power on a, with, with a mandate to sort of yeah. clean up corruption and improve services and flip uh-huh. the whole notion of, Indon- of of Indonesian government on its head. It was the people who um, served the government under 
well, up, uh, during, during the Suharto years, and he sort of had the idea that really maybe the government services should serve the people and be accountable right. to them. He, in varying degrees, was successful in that. I think the model and the theory of government, the theory of the case, has stuck. As you say, mm-hmm. completely agree that the people are covetous of their right. They will not give it up. But I feel something a little different now. I feel mm-hmm. a little bit of complacency, and I don't know to the degree mm-hmm. that you're watching the news or you got or you got a sense of how often you're, you've been coming to Indonesia. There was a fever in 2014. I now there's a similar guy to Widodo Ganjar Pranowo, Ridwan yeah. Mill, the East Java governor, who's mm-hmm. um, is another. These are these are another brooms. They're um, clean skins. Um, and the same sort of fever doesn't really surround. Yeah. So what do you make of that? Are, are, are the people kind of complacent? Like, yeah, we got this, you know, it's been 20 years. We're, we're well on our way mm-hmm. or we don't really care. Like what's, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Do, do, do they, do they still have the Holy spirit? Oh, <laughs> well, that's a good question. I mean, I think that, uh, I think the spirit is still there. I think that it's hard to it's hard to maintain the kind of energy of sort of generating something new. I do think that you know what Jacoby brought was was something new, and I think that new element. I mean, it's people draw the analogy to Obama in the United States, and I think that's you know I think it's a it's a fair one in certain respects. You know, this this was you know someone who wasn't a product of the of the old authoritarian system. He was someone who, you know, didn't mind, you know, getting his feet dirty, getting his hands dirty, mixing it up with the people, had a common touch, all those kinds of things. Um, and he's still, you know, he's still very popular. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and, beca- and I think and I think he's popular because he wants the same thing that most Indonesian voters want, which is, you know, development and social services and just better stuff. And so I think so. I think he's pretty effective at that. And so I think that you know what does that do? I mean, I think that makes politics a little more technocratic. I think it makes it a little. It lowers the temperature. I think that um, part of the spirit in 2014 was also about keeping Prabowo Subianto out of the presidency, mm. um, and that there was a real fear of what that would mean. And I think that now that's you know now Jokowi and Prabowo are sort of best of buds. So um, <laughs> I think I think so. I think there as well. It's just. There's not the, um, I mean, the spirit requires a little bit of polarization, right? Yeah. You know, a lot of polarization can be scary. 2016, yeah. 2017, things got kind of scary. Um, but I think we're in a, in a moment now where the polarization is so low that maybe it's it's kind of sapped some energy. So um, wait, so am I, if, do, do I have this right then that it's actually kind of okay in your view that it, it, we don't need to have be on that fever pitch. If, if, if the people are, you know, taking this in stride and maybe not taking to the streets, that's probably a good thing. That's that that demonstrates a, a democracy, a, a polity that that is maturing. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, food can be good hot. Food can be good cold, right? I mean, it, if it was always, I mean, if democracy only worked when things were at a fever pitch, you know, we wouldn't have a lot of democracy, you know. Um, you know, things settle into there, there, there are moments of tumult. There's there are moments of high energy and there are moments of lower energy. It's it's not as if democracy has to be one or the other. And I think that 
the big question I think is how people respond when, you know, when challenged and when there's a crisis and, you know, if they do, you know, start doing things like, you know, getting rid of local elections and if they're, if, mm-hmm. if more, yeah. you know, and if, if, if more, you know, if more damage gets done to the KPK and these kinds of things, you know, that there's, that there's some kind of response And this, in this new article I have, you know, kind of my main concern is that I just feel like civil society and youth in Indonesia protesters, you know, have always been the, the best check, you know, on the political elite in Indonesia. They can't always check them, but nothing else checks them better. And my real worry is that Jokowi has been pretty okay with increasing your know, criminalization of protest, criminalization of dissent. And my real worry is that the next time political elites say, you know, they had, of course, there was the criminal law in December, but, but if they really do like strike some big legal blow against democratic rights, that they're, you know, that, that the Indonesian people simply aren't going to be allowed to get out and protest it like they have in the past. And so that's really my biggest worry at the moment. I think where the biggest threat lies. So basically, uh, independence of institutions, is that something you see having suffered uh, degradation uh, past few years? Yeah, I do. I do. I think the KPK is the biggest example. I think the, I think the court, high court as well, there's, you know, you know, I think concerns there as well. I mean, to be frank, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean independent institutions have never been the great strength of Indonesian democracy, right? Um, they, they take a long time to, to build and to strengthen. I think the KPK is kind of the, the exception, right? It's just, extra, I mean, it really is extraordinary, you know, that, that Indonesia would generate such a an authoritative popular and you know in many ways effective anti-corruption commission but it's kind of the exception right um indonesian you know political institutions are not exactly you know they're, they're not really a picture of robustness you know as i was saying you know this is a place with a bureaucracy that's you know pretty you know especially its peak bureaucracy is pretty you know pretty pretty well organized pretty you know pretty effective at a lot of things mm. security services that have a long history of you know of you know, surveilling the archipelago and rooting out threats and these kinds of things, you know the, the so the state, you know the the kind of the the what other people call the deep state, but which I just call the state um, in Indonesia is like it's pretty you know that's pretty robust and so there you know things like courts, you know things like parliament, uh, you know they tend to be a bit weaker and so it really it's fragile and it means that when you have people in power who don't have real commitment to these kinds of institutions and are sort of willing to say, well, you know, my buddies, my allies are in the military or, you know, they're in the security services or they're in the bureaucracy and I trust their judgment. I'm going to kind of listen to them and, and not pay as much attention to the people. It, it, you know, it's not a far slide. And so I think this is part of what makes Indonesian democracy very fragile, but it's part of what makes democracy fragile in general. It's not as if, we look around the world and say, wow, democracy is on this big winning streak. I mean, we're seeing everywhere um, how much it can come under attack, under assault, yeah. and it can weaken. And so, you know, part of what's going on, it's not like it's, yeah, this is not like exoticizing Indonesia to say, oh, it's democracy is threatened. It's like it just it just makes it a, a country. <laughs> it makes it a, a democracy right. like every other in that way. They're normal. As we're going into this election year, um, next week will be the uh, will be exactly when you're out. What are you looking at? What's what's standing out as as different? I mean, I already sort of alluded to sort of the popular mood, um, mm-hmm. but you know, Kevin and I have been talking about a number of things, and that one year out, we're we're not really sure who 
who absolutely is going to be standing. We uh-huh. there's Kevin's made the joke that you know people are being people may not want the job or they're not they're 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 not uh, they're not stepping up or if they're afraid they're to step up they're going to get uh-huh. knocked back down. Um, well, when I say uh, the the joke the joke across is much more funny. I think when I say it, it is, I, 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 right. it's, the, it's all about the timing. It's it's, the, yeah. it's all about the delivery. And I'm sure yeah. Kevin's a riot when he says it. Yeah. Well, it is kind of funny because I think I think people do want to be president. Um, I think that uh, I think that as I mean, not surprisingly, I think Honest Bospadon is kind of taking the lead in trying to assemble a coalition. And I think basically the goal for him has to be. And I, I doubt it will work, but I think ideally from his perspective, he keeps Prabowo out. I mean, basically, it's I don't think it's all that complicated in the sense that there are basically, you know, in 2014 and 2019, there were two politicians in Indonesia who had so much higher popularity than the others that only one of them was going to win. It was going to be Jokowi or it was going to be Prabowo. There was really no third option. And at this point, you know, I still think we're in a situation where there are basically three. You have you still have Prabowo lurking around. Um, you've, you've you've got Ganjar Pranowo, as you mentioned, um, right? And you've got Anis Anis Baswedan. And so there's three. And although I think Ganjar is probably in the strongest position, if it's just a straight fight, all three have a real shot. And so the the, the key is okay. Now we're at the nomination stage. We're at the party you know party alliance stage. We've got to assemble enough, you know, votes and seats to put a candidate forward. And I think, you know, Honest's best hope is that he can get a straight up shot with whoever the PDIP puts forward. Um, that's my ne- that'll be my next point. Um, mm. And then and tries to get Provo out, and that basically Honest is able to really, really get the overwhelming support from the from the Islamic side of of Indonesian society, um, as opposed to the more pluralist Pancasila side. So then the second thing I'm looking for is, well, what is you know what's PDIP going to do? Right. And here, yet again, we have, you know, Megawati having a choice to make where it's either, well, I can make sure the family keeps dominating the party or I can give my party the best chance of running the country. And those two things are in total tension with each other. And so one hopes that she you know, sees the right on the wall, you know, that she says this is our, our best chance is put Ganjar forward. He's basically like he, he's set up to win. He could basically reassemble the Jokowi coalition and should be able to win if Jokowi endorsed him. Again, Jokowi is very popular. You know, I think that that's that's sort of the most straightforward way that things go forward. But Ganjar has got to get the he's got to get the nomination. And then, you know, we'll we'll see if, how things play out on the more Islamic side with with Anas and Provoa. Um, and will will the math? I think the math will work out that all three of them get a nomination, and then we have a runoff. I think that's what will happen. Um, but I think honest at this point is trying to get enough parties in his pocket that Prabowo stands aside. I don't think it'll happen, but I think that's kind of his his strategy at the moment. Right. So I think uh, keeping in mind what you what you mentioned about the the risks to uh, independent or the risks to democratization due to the degradation of uh, independent mm-hmm. institutions. Um, that's, that's a new thing in this election cycle. Plus, uh, we still have, uh, the same old, uh, uh, risks of polarization depending sure. on, on how the things fall out and, um, what, uh, transpires uh, in this scenario of a Prabowo presidency, what sort of, uh, implications do you see for Indonesia? Mm. Well, I think that as honest is sort of, you know, he's looking at the numbers, he's looking at the situation. So let's start with honest. I think honest, you know, I think he kind of overplayed the Islamic card 
if you will, earlier on. And I think that he's been trying to backpedal from that. I think he's making some moves to try. He's, you know, a very savvy strategic politician, right? And what he wants is 51%. You know, if, if he believes in anything, he believes that he wants 51%, right? And so I think he is going to be working hard to try to put forward a more pluralist image. And because look, the Proboa coalition lost twice. And so he's got to cut into that. And so I think the, the good thing is I, I would see him, if it is, say, him against Ganjar, I think he is not, is probably not going to see kind of hyper-polarizing things like Prabowo did in 2014, 2019. He's not going to see that as a winning strategy. I think he'll he'll try to pick up a little of that Jokowi magic. I think he's going to try to, you know, bring you know, bring the common touch. I think he's going to try to, you know, say he's you know, going to be a president for all Indonesians. Um, so I actually think that in terms of campaign, I'm not too worried about polarization, or at least not as worried as I would have been, you know, in the last two electoral cycles. I think that the kind of the more inclusive, you know, cross cleavage approach is, is, is a proven winner. Um, and so I think that's kind of what both Anis and Ganjar, you know, or Ridwan, if anyone else manages to get the nomination, will will, will go for. Um I'm I'm less worried about how Proboa would campaign than I'm worried about how he would govern. Yeah, um, that's, that's what I wanted to get at, really. Is that, is yeah, that well, yeah, please, please, yeah, cu- yeah, no, no, d- definitely. Um, and so I think that you go ahead, no, please. Yeah, so basically, what, what would a Proboa presidency look like? I think um, I think it would look a lot like the Duterte presidency, to be honest. Okay. Um, I, and, and what I mean by that, so what what, so I think an underappreciated aspect of the Duterte presidency in the Philippines was that, you know, people, you know, there's a lot of attention to the fact that you know all these human rights abuses, but Duterte remained very popular. But the other thing that he did, you know, partly leveraging that popular support was he had very, very widespread support among the elite. He basically had faced no serious elite opposition, you know, during his term in office. Um, and so, you know, the thing is, is, you know, in the Philippines, usually elites are very divided, very factionalized. They don't get along at all. Indonesia, they're much more chummy. And so Indonesia is kind of primed for, you know, a president to be able to essentially bring everybody into the coalition, basically not face any real opposition. And so I think what Prabowo, for all his polarizing rhetoric, I mean, mean, Prabowo just wants to be like he wants to be, again, the Rajabasar, right? He wants to be the big king. And I think he would basically probably try to kind of reconsolidate the political elite behind him, you know, and clearly this is someone with no democratic, you know, principles, commitments at all. And so, you know, I'm very, very concerned. I think, you know, I think some are more worried about an honest presidency in the sense that, they're worried about, you know, creeping Islamization and they think, you know, it's it's hard to push back against, you know, against political Islam. And, and I, I, I take that point, but I, I still think a Proboa presidency remains, you know, a much, much bigger threat because the, in a sense, Jokowi has set the table for him. You know, I mean, Jokowi has already been, um, you know, I think mostly through neglect, kind of letting the more democratic um, aspects of, of, of Indonesian government decay. Um, and it'll allow them to, you know, to kind of come under attack. And so it really just, it just sort of would take someone with, you know, who, who's ready to finish the job in a sense. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, Prabo is exactly that kind of guy. And unfortunately, I think Jacoby has really um, kind of, um, you know, rehabilitated him. You know, he's, it's been a long, you know, story of Proboa being rehabilitated, you know, election by election. And despite, you know, the things that he does, um, he still stays, you know, right at the center of things. 
Um, and so I think that's really the the real existential threat um, in the 2024 election, you know, as it has been in 2014, 2019, which is that Prabowo gets the keys to the kingdom um, and the Indonesian presidency is a pretty powerful position. Um, and if you if you're willing to use it in authoritarian ways, I, I don't think there's a there's not a whole lot that could stop it. There's nothing like being yelled at by Prabowo Subianto in front of a room full of journalists. I have to tell you, it is a thrill. Yeah, a, a rare thrill, a rare thrill that indeed. Is, so oh we, 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 should all, we should all be so lucky. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. to, be, um, to bask in the, bask in that glow. Oh, goodness. The full blast. Um, your predictions, sir, for 2024. We're in the prediction business here. We love it. Can't get right. enough of it. I mean, there's, <laughs> you're, the candidates and uh, how do you think it'll play out? Mm. If you care, so, bold. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, journalists love to predict. Political scientists hate to predict. But, yeah, that's <laughs> not fun. And this is our um, chance. I think no. I think the I, I think I think the most likely scenario. I think the most likely scenario is we have three candidates. I think I think PDIP pulls it together. They nominate Ganjar. I think you end up with a Ganjar honest runoff, and I think Ganjar wins. I think that's the most likely scenario, and I think it's also the most um, felicitous result um, for uh, for for Indonesian politics. And here again, it's like. Why? It's because of the voters. You know, I just think, you know, the voters twice have, you know, pulled it together, done the more pluralistic thing. I think Ganjar has got enough of that Jokowi magic that it's a popular it's a popular prototype. Um, and he's the closest thing to the he's the closest thing to a clone as we're going to find. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm inclined to think that's the most likely scenario. But, you know, it's not hard to think of three or four ways that can go sideways. And so yeah. it, it, it's, it's anything but a done deal. But I, but I, if, if a prediction is saying what's the most likely thing, I think that's the most likely thing. I like his polling numbers the most. If I could be any of the three of them, I'd rather be him. Again, the there's just a model in place of what the coalition looks like. You know, so you make sure you get someone from from Mabatu Ulama. You make sure you've got East Java nailed down. You run up the score in East Java. You run up the score with not with non-Muslims. Um, you hold your own with the Javanese population by basically being the, you know, the down to earth, you know, common touch guy. And, and that gets, that should get you a victory. Um, there's again, Megawati stands in the way. She's the biggest obstacle to it. Again, hopefully, you know, she's gonna, you know, um, realize that, you know, what's happened the last couple of times have been, have been successful. Hopefully she won't be too worried that, um, and I think this is the real fear is that she worries like, oh, well, okay, Jacoby didn't yank. PDIP away from us, but if we if we give it up one more time, you know that the family could kind of lose its grip. Um, so and hopefully that's not the that. You're one hundred percent right about that. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin, what do you think? You yeah. What do you think, Kevin? What do you think, Kevin? Uh, well, yeah, uh, it seems like it's a combination of candidate managing their image and credibility, um, but also appealing to the, the various blocks and the electorate that are out there. West Java and East Java and non-Muslims and so on. Uh, and uh, money um, is a factor that I'm, I'm always asked about. Uh, how big is that in elections uh, in your mind? Mm. Well, I think it's big, but I think that, you know, it comes with the, it comes with the popularity, you know, I mean, basically there's more than enough money <laughs> just to put it mildly swimming around Indonesian elections and Indonesian political finance that anyone who's got a legitimate shot at the presidency is going to be able to raise the money. 
the bigger issue is, you know, what quid pro quos come with that and, and what then and then, and then who has access to, to the Astana when all is said and done. But I don't think this will be a case where, oh, you know, somebody won because they had such a huge money advantage. It's again, you know, the thing about Indonesian politics is, is, you know, you lose, you don't really lose. You know, if you lose, it just means, OK, well, you just get to you just get to, to win a little bit less a little bit later, you know. And so why not? Why not invest in in these different? This is why I think there'll be three nominees. Right. Because there's really no there's really no price to losing. You know, it's if it were the case that, OK, you know, backing Proboa and he comes in third means, OK, now you're going to be really cut out of the action. Then maybe you think twice, but you're not going to be cut out of the action. You know, you, you just then you just side with and you get some cabinet seats and you get some contracts and you get some project and you're fine. So you get the three you get the three nominees. They'll all have plenty of money. And in all of this political investment, political finance will pay off, will, will pay off handsomely down the road. So you, you, you put your eggs in multiple baskets. You you invest in different candidates. And, yeah, I think it's, you know, <laughs> I think it's kind of the way it goes. Great, Dan. I wish uh, we had more time with you. Uh, we'll check back with you next time, though, in future, if you don't mind. And uh, we really appreciate uh, you sharing your views with us today. Well, that would be great, Jeff. Yeah, happy to talk to you guys anytime. It's been fun. Okay. Thanks. And that's the pod. Thanks so much to Professor Dan Slater of the University of Michigan for joining us. Our editing and sound engineering is done by Stephen Handoko. Our music is courtesy of the Blue Dot Sessions. For a free two-week trial of Kevin's Reformasi Weekly Newsletter, which he will only let you have if you also think he's funny, go to reformasi.info. You can support us by donating at buymeacoffee.com slash reformasi. That's buymeacoffee.com slash reformasi. Follow us on Twitter, reformasi underscore pod. You can even email us at hello at onthelevel.id. That's hello level.id and if you're listening to us through a podcast app please hit subscribe it would be a huge help this podcast is a production of on the level media i'm jeff hutton bye for now